Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, Proceedings Magazine's Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hi, Bill. Happy Wednesday, Ward. Happy Wednesday. So, as we discussed in the previous episode of the Proceedings Podcast, we were both at the Army-Navy game. How was your weekend, besides the obvious fact that Navy lost? Yeah, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, the show was great. You know. <laughs> um, well, it was fun to be up at, uh, at at Philadelphia. I didn't go into the stadium. I actually went and just enjoyed the tailgater that my classmates uh, threw. And then um, a, a lot of them went into the game. They said you know, it took an hour to an hour and a half to get into the stadium because of security surrounding the, the president and the secretary of defense and, and service chiefs and all of that. So, And then they froze their tails off uh, during the game, which was uh, a bit of a painful game. But it ended up that the score was less lopsided than the game was. Uh, so Navy lost, but it was uh, it was closer on the scoreboard than it really a- appeared to be on the on the field. But. Yeah, it's it's always regardless of who wins, and this is something I said uh, at the outset of the last show, but it proved out again this this week, last weekend. It's always an amazing event, um, the pageantry before the flyovers, the Apaches coming over, or the longbow Apaches flying over at super low alt- altitude is amazing. We were up in the cheap seats. The nosebleed. Uh, we were at the 50-yard line, so that was pretty good in terms of watching the game. But the pageantry and uh, I had a great conversation with some West Pointers from class of 12 on the way in, um, in the long line to get in because of the, the security exceptionally uh, uh, tight because the president was there. But as we were walking in, Air Force One flew over on its way to land at Philadelphia. It was really cool looking, and everybody kind of cheered. You know, see that 747 with that distinct paint paint That's scheme. That's cool. I, I arrived after that. So yeah, I didn't no, see that, really but I did see the Apaches and the Hornets, and yeah, majestic to watch yeah, that. That's uh, cool. That come in. So uh, yeah, as we say in the Army Navy business, we'll get them next year. Amen. Um, a lot of rumors about what's going to happen to the Navy football team um, in the uh, in the off season here. Um, no bowl game this year for the first time, I think, in the Ken Niamatololo era. Maybe that he didn't go to the first one when he was head coach, but been to one ever since. So this is weird uh, for for Navy not to um, be uh, for the season to be done before bowl season. But uh, we'll uh, we'll adapt and overcome. Um, so anything else happening in the current events world? Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to mention. Uh, one is uh, our staff just finished uh, the uh, initial screening of the 86 essays we got for the first ever running of the Midshipman and Cadet Essay Contest. So this is a contest uh, that we're running this year for the first time ever. Uh, General Dynamics uh, Information Technology sponsored it, which was great. Uh, 86 essays is very healthy for a new essay contest, uh, and we got essays from the Naval Academy, Coast Guard Academy, Merchant Marine Academy, NROTC, and some officer candidates. So, uh, you know, great inputs. Um, we, we've cut it down to uh, the top eight to go to our editorial board for judging. About another 10 that we like uh, for publishing, either as Proceedings Today or a Professional Notes or on the blog. Uh, and uh, I just want to congratulate all those out there who, uh, you know, young writers who, who had the courage to, you know, sit down at their keyboards and uh, in addition to their busy schedules as uh, midshipmen and cadets, uh, uh, you know, to write for an essay contest. And if you, um, you know, if you weren't one of the top eight, ten, um, you know, don't give up. Write again. 
uh, learn from the experience. Um, you know, we're always willing to help and provide some input. Uh, our editors are uh, to young writers who ha might have a question about, hey, uh, you know, I didn't win, I didn't, uh, you know, get published. How can I improve my writing? We we love to do that. So uh, developing young writers is uh, definitely part of our mission. Uh, I wanted to point out a couple of things that we've got a, a very lively debate going on on our website on the Discuss platform um, about one of the December articles in Proceedings. The article was the piece by former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, and it was called uh, Can China and the United States Avoid War? And it, it, it's a, um, a boiled-down version of the speech he gave here at the Naval Academy, uh, at the Naval Institute, Naval Academy uh, China conference in, in October. Um, and, and it's you know interesting to see how people react to that article um, and you know the, the discussion that's, uh, that, that has um, you know lit off. Uh, we dedicated a lot more pages in the magazine to Kevin Rudd's article than we normally do to regular articles. We thought it was that important. Um, a couple people in the comments have, I think, um, incorrectly accused Kevin Rudd of being a panda hugger or a China lover. Uh, and I can tell I can tell you all that I, I was privileged to sit in a meeting in 2010 when then he was then the, the foreign minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, came to Hawaii and met with Admiral Willard, who was the PACOM commander. And they had a very a fascinating conversation, very strategic about what to do about the, the rise of China and the the buildup of Chinese military and and you know comprehensive national power and I can tell you in that private conversation Kevin Rudd was no panda hugger he was balancing very you know very strategic level uh, you know complications making decisions about you know the Australians were making decisions about what parts of the Australian uh, economy to allow China to invest in um, you know the um, Rio Tinto mines were one place where Australia said, yes, it's okay for the, um, the Chinese to invest here. Uh, but Huawei in the communications, telecommunications infrastructure was one place where they said, nope, we're not going to let the, the Chinese invest in our uh, telecommunications infrastructure because we have a sense of where that's going. And that's been in the news uh, just this week. So anyone out there who thinks Kevin Rudd is some sort of a panda hugger, I can tell you. you panda hugger? Uh, that's, that know, that's, I mean, that's 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 so nice. I know. That's a nomenclature for those who, you know, think everything related to China. If you saw a panda, you'd be inclined yeah, to hug it. They're know, so wouldn't, cute. Wouldn't you want to? They're very cute. Um but uh, if you haven't read that piece, uh, Can China and the United States Avoid War? It starts on uh, uh, the opening spread is, is on page 20 and 21 of the December issue of Proceedings. You can find it online. Just Google Proceedings, Kevin Rudd, China-U.S. War, and it'll pop right up. Uh, it is a great, great article. Uh, and it, one of the great quotes in it that, that we used, uh, we pulled out as a, as a pull quote, uh, was this point, and, and I think this is, one of the things that comes out as I read this article over and over again in the edit editing process, most who take the U.S.-China relationship seriously struggle with the intellectual and policy complexity of the subject before us. And I think that was one of the, the gifts that Kevin Rudd provided to when he spoke to it and then when he allowed us to publish this piece is it, it really gets at the enormous complexity of this uh, of the current world situation, of this struggle, tension between the two most powerful economies in the world, the two most powerful militaries in the world, uh, and how um, our alliances and our trading partners are all intertangled. 
and it's it's just it's a fascinating article and I, I recommend it to you and uh, and you know if you if it stirs you jump into the debate uh, in the discuss or the comment section of proceedings uh, online uh, it, it's been a really interesting you know debate over the last week or so and as you mentioned this was the transcript of his remarks at uh, our uh, our uh, history conference and uh, a reminder that our events team does a fantastic job of getting people of this magnitude uh, in the room. You know, this is a uniquely Naval Institute, a signature Naval Institute kind of event. You know, former prime ministers, service chiefs, influencers, former secretaries. This is just what happens when you come to a Naval Institute event. So uh, really, really amazing stuff. And, and you have the chance to uh, ask questions of them, to, you know, to join in the debate with them. So that's an, another fun thing about uh, and really fascinating thing about Naval Institute events is that you always have a chance to, uh, after the speech has been been given, to get up and ask questions of these very influential people. So and that, they, sometimes they hang around and you can actually absolutely. just chat informally yeah, chat with them informally. after the event is over. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, Again, your your uh, what's the value proposition of membership is early heads ups for events that may be happening in your area, uh, and once again we'll be in San Diego for West for your planning purposes in mid February this year. Um, another great lineup. I want to say the dates are the 11th to the 13th uh, of February, so it's a little later than it was um, last year. Um, but San Diego is always a great time that time of year. It's always great to escape the cold of the uh, Middle Atlantic in, uh, in the heart of winter. Um, but uh, if you're on the West Coast or anywhere within uh, driving or flying distance uh, from the, the West Coast, join us at the San Diego Convention Center uh, in uh, February. Are you verifying the dates that I've I am. Up? It's uh, February, Wednesday through Friday, February 13th, 14th, and 15th. I'm sorry, I got the dates wrong. 13th, 14th, and 15th. And you can find uh, information on West uh, on our website, www.usni.org, and then click on Conferences, and the first thing that pops up is uh, West 2019. So, uh, and the a, member event, event, which is our signature event, everybody wants to go to that, is on Thursday night, so that will be the evening of the 14th. And this cool... Uh, uh, area that overlooks the Padres Stadium, and you can see all of downtown um, uh, San Diego. It's an elegant event. It's a sort of who's who uh, event. So if you're a member, you're invited, you, and you should have received your invitation already. Um, and uh, hope we'll see you there. Okay. Uh, well, let's go right to our guest now. Uh, we're excited to have on the line from Norfolk, Virginia, from uh, Marine Forces Command, uh, Major Dion, uh, Raphael Dion Warfield, who has written an article that's in the uh, December issue of Proceedings. It's called, Every Marine is Not an Advisor. Major Warfield's piece won second place in the Marine Corps Essay Contest in 2018, sponsored by BAE Systems. So, Major Warfield, uh, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. So, uh, in, in a nutshell, give us uh, just a little bit uh, about what your article is about and what spurred you to write it. Well, in addition to being a 4402, which is the MOS for a judge advocate, I also hold the additional MOS of an 0570, which is a Foreign Security Force Advisor, um, being having the formal training um, to be a uh, an advisor working with Foreign Security Forces, going through the advisor course offered here um, in Virginia, and I'm having those skill sets um, that allow us to go out and work with our foreign partners overseas. Um, 
in the past few years and in this current billet here at Marpore Com as an operational law attorney, I've worked with uh, the Republic of Georgian military as well as the Ugandan forces. And I have also trained a lot of Marines um, on rules of engagement, escalation of force, um, tactical directives, um, and the use of force as they go to other parts of the world to work with uh, our foreign partners. And what we have seen in the teams that have come through, you know, we've got motivated Marines, we've got, you know, motivated teams. Um, they're excited to be doing this type of work. Um, but time and time again, it's a matter of sourcing these teams and where they're coming from. And um, we find that a lot of times it's not necessarily, you know, going out looking for the most capable or the, or the most interested. It's a matter for for the Marine Corps of finding who is available. You know, we are, we've got a lot of priorities. We've got a lot of, you know, uh, requirements that we have to fulfill. And sometimes these teams and these requirements um, don't always get the priority that they deserve. And it's a, it becomes a, an ad hoc basis. You know, who, who can spare a team of Marines or, you know, is there a reserve unit that we can tap to, to give up a few bodies in order to, con- to conduct this mission? And as we have noticed, and you know, in the the output of, and the productivity of these teams, sometimes it affects their ability to be successful. And that's what uh, the article is about: is finding a better way to screen and select the individuals that are going to be advisors, and looking for those things that are not necessarily um, just the the standard oorah marine characteristics. You know, more than just physical fitness, more than just tactical and technically proficient, but some of those other skills that cannot necessarily be captured in a fit rep. So uh, just like to recognize folks who are calling in or, or chatting f- on Facebook Live. Uh, Kels Harris is uh, saying hello from Point Loma Naval Base. And then Senzana Karubin is watching from Macedonia. Hello, Senzana. Wow. Um, and just invite the audience uh, to ask questions on Facebook Live, and we'll try to fuse them into the conversation as we can. Uh, so, Rafael, on page 42, you, you frame... Uh, sort of the thesis pretty well. As an organization, the Marine Corps has become wed to the idea that if a Marine is physically fit, combat fit, can recite Marine Corps history, that's a nice dig on Marines polishing the trophy, of course, is proficient at his or her military occupational specialty, knows combat tactics, can drill and is motivated, then he or she is a plug-and-play Marine, able to do whatever task is assigned. That is not the case. So to sort of pony on Bill's question uh, at the outset, how is that not the case with respect to being an advisor? Well, with being an advisor, it's more than just um, more than just being able to accomplish a combat mission. Um, you know, there's a there's a joke sometimes. You know, among some of us that you know we have service, we have Marines who are those you know breaking time of war Marines. Like you know, they are really good when it comes to getting the mission accomplished and uh, going out there and you know winning the war and taking the fight to the enemy. Um, but in other aspects, uh, they they lack some skills and they need additional training. And I think advising is one of those unique areas where you can't just say because someone is a warfighter and proficient in the six warfighting functions that they have the, the personality and the, the natural uh, skills and drive that is going to be required to work with a foreign partner overseas. So I, I think you're, you're hinting at some of the cultural intangibles that go with this kind of work, right? Because to be an advisor, uh, you're, you're working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, every single day with people from a different culture, from a different military, different nation, 
uh, with a different perspective on on the world, on the situation in Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever it might be. So what are what are some of those intangibles that you know a, a Marine who is uh, you know mega ura um, you know might not have, uh, even though they're a great infantry Marine or a great you know helicopter pilot or something, but they may they may be lacking some of those skills that you're sort of getting at here. Well, some of the more basic ones, and I guess kind of putting the basic skill, the basic terms is just, um, you know, those interpersonal skills, those social skills. Um, when you deal with someone from another country that may have an entirely different cultural background, you can't use the the paradigm or the, the perspective of an American. Because um, what we see and what we think is norm, what we find funny, what we find offensive is not going to be the same um, around the world. And it takes a person who is open to that concept and conscious of that concept uh, whenever they're you know, interacting and talking um, with a foreign partner um, to be aware of that and be aware of themselves so that they do not um, accidentally offend or say something off, off color or cause a, a bad relationship to develop. So um, I actually have some family experience with this. My son is a Marine Corps reservist, combat engineer. Um, he went through that school at Little, or not Little Creek, at Fort Story. Um, maybe that's the one you're talking about that, uh, that you have some uh, oversight or, or input to. Um, and uh, the the Foreign Advisors School there, uh, help me out with what the official title is. Um, it's the Marine Corps. It's now known as the Marine Corps Security Force Regiment, and the program is the Marine Advisor Course. So he 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 said anecdotally that uh you know it was it was uh, a compliment to get selected for that not everybody gets to go obviously um and uh, he was eventually slated to go to Uganda um it it didn't happen because his uh reserve unit needed him to come back to the reserve unit um but he was it seemed like there was a process of sorts how is that flawed vis-a-vis uh your article here so when we get the teams, we are responsible, and when I say we, uh, the, 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 the Marines who work at the Security Force Regiment, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Advisory Regiment um, down in Fort Story, uh, they don't necessarily select the Marines as far as who comes to them on these teams. The teams are coming to them um, to get the training, to get the skill sets, and they, they do a wide, a wide range of training to prepare them to go over there. The article is mainly dealing with the selection of the teams whenever they're sourced. So whenever they're coming from the reserve units or whenever they're coming from their, their, other, um, their other home home units, such as the MEF or whatever, that's, that process is the process that, that I'm talking about as far as not really screening these Marines um, to see who is, you know, more, I guess, inept or adapt to taking on this responsibility. This reminds me that in the 2018 National Defense Strategy, signed out by Secretary Mattis, there are three strategic lines of effort, the second of which is called Strengthen Alliances and Attract New Partners. And, and your article is, uh, you know, definitely aligns with that. You know, if you're going to strengthen alliances, if you're going to attract partners and maintain partners and build lethality that is a, uh, you know, a partnering or a, an alliance lethality, it requires the right kind of people to be uh, advisors to to help make those you know strong connections with another with a foreign military or a foreign nation uh, to you know to sort of cement that that bond of friendship correct correct and one of the things that you know that I looked at when I was researching and writing the article or other organizations um, that have 
kind of a similar mission or a similar purpose. And I was looking at the Peace Corps and looking at the Peace Corps process and how they select their individuals um, and how they place them. And the Peace Corps has a multi-tiered interview and application process to where, you know, there are multiple people who are looking at your package and then actually speaking with you to not only find out if you would be a good fit for the Peace Corps, but to find out where they could place you, where you could thrive. And that's an organization that's been doing that for a while, and clearly they've, they've kind of got it down to a science, and that process um, is not currently present in the Marine Corps. And that's, and that's what I'm saying. We need to look at the individual and not necessarily just you know whether or not they're trained and can do their MOS, but whether or not they have those personal skills and they have the personality and the intellect to go and to maybe – deal with some of these problems and issues that are not necessarily going to be something we can train them for. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great uh, thing you bring up because Jack Ontieno uh, just asked a question on Facebook Live. He says, Jack says, watching from Nairobi, Kenya, special request on the criteria of qualification standard to serve in AmeriCorps at the educational level. I don't know if you can speak to that or if you know anything. When you're talking about the Peace Corps, um, can you at all address what Jack's uh, asking there. I, I don't think I can address that because I don't I, I don't want to speak out of turn talking about um, you know their 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 qualifications. I just know that they they definitely have they do they do a background check. They ask for the Peace Corps. They do a background check. They ask for references, and then you're actually meeting with um, you know supervisors and, and representatives from the organization that handle different geographic areas and being interviewed by them before they actually accept you into the organization. And that process, that, that screening board selection process is, is what we are lacking and what could actually be, uh, be a force multiplier for the Corps. Ah, perfect. Yeah, so I, I don't know if you heard it, but in the background when you mentioned Peace Corps, I heard a I heard a, a collective groan from some of our listeners who are probably like, "Oh, this Marine wants the the Marine Corps to be the Peace Corps," and and I don't think that's what you were saying, no. but you you were you were likening the process, right? The the selection process that and in in on page forty three of your article, you say. Marines submit packages for recruiting duty, drill instructor duty, Marine security guard duty, and special operations, which are all, you know, slightly different. They're specialized parts of the Marine Corps. And then you say, why shouldn't they submit packages and be board screened for foreign security force advisor duty? Correct. And, and yeah, to be clear, by no means am I suggesting that the Marine Corps ever do anything that resembles the Peace Corps. Um, it's, it's, it's more focusing on their process. They have a, a process now where they're screening individuals for this specialized mission and like and like like you mentioned you know right now for recruiting duty and for um embassy duty you know we've got these we've got these board selection processes where marines are putting in packages and at the very least their command has an opportunity in the endorsement of these packages to say whether or not you know they support this marine going into this specialized program or whether or not he or she will not be a a good fit for this program and there's at least that opportunity for a group of individuals to look at a package and to have someone say yes i think this is a good fit and we don't have that for advisors and i think that's that's very crucial that we are looking at the individuals um themselves and not just the groups of, of who is available yeah well while not exactly the same uh, i was a, a uh, military attache in Russia from 2004 to 2006. 
And, uh, you know, while I was not an advisor to the Russian military, I lived there. I had to work with them. I was an intermediary between the U.S. and the Russian military at that time. At the time, the relationship was quite good. Putin and, and uh, President Bush were getting along well. Uh, it was a time when we had lots of ship visits, uh, U.S. Navy ship visits to Russian ports. Uh, and I remember, you know, when I got there, it was harder than I expected it to be. And I was glad that the that the selection process was as thorough as it was because I had to go through a lot of interviews that, you know, helped me convince myself I really wanted to do this and I had the language skills uh, and I had the ability to, to put myself in their shoes while not, a, you know, going native and agreeing with the Russian perspective. It was powerful to be able to explain it uh, to U.S. decision makers. Hey, why are the Russians doing this? Well, they're doing this because it looks this way to them. You may agree or disagree, but I just, you know, my job is to explain that to you and to be able to, you know, to bridge the gap between, you know, two very, very different cultures, right? And I think you're getting at that, that it's very important to be able to be culturally aware uh, and, and have interpersonal skills that allow you to bridge those distances, even though sometimes, you know, they are, can be, you know, light years apart. You're exactly right. The the attaché process was another process that I looked at. Um, that you know, we actually do look at the individual, and there are there are there's an interview and a selection process, and we're we're looking for those um, those non tangibles. And it's it's kind of a thing for as I was writing the article, and I did more research that you know, as I was looking back at history, we've been doing this for about a century now. And there and multiple after-action reports and multiple, you know, historians and people who have written articles and books about this have, have all said that a large component of our success as a foreign advisor to militaries, and, you know, when we have our service members working with other, other foreign security forces, is the individual personalities and those relationships. And we've got to have people who are able to cultivate those relationships. They may not be the best at their job. They may not be the, you know, the best infantry officer or the best artillery man, but if they've got the personality and they've got those intangibles and they're able to use those and build off of those, they can be successful and probably more successful than someone who is just te- technically and tactically proficient. I'm glad you brought up the history piece because in your uh, in your article on page 42, you, you bring up the banana wars and uh, Vietnam, and then you go on to Iraq and Afghanistan experience. So talk a little bit about what the Marine Corps did well uh, in um, Central America and then in Vietnam and then Iraq and Afghanistan and also the places where uh, they could have done better. So in the Vietnam War, um, I discussed the, the Marine uh the Marine, the Combined Action Program in the Marine Advisory, uh, the Marine Advisory Group, um, with the with the Combined Action Program, um, it was one of those programs where it started off good, but then as the uh, interest as the interest dropped off and the, we started we stopped having um, Marines volunteering for the program or volunteering for the process, it became more of a okay, so we got to fill these spots. Who's got Marines that we can fill? Um, for the Marine Advisory uh, Group that was that was being used during that same uh, same war, uh, we were able to maintain uh, that focus on individuals with interest and individuals that were volunteering. And those two programs happening at the same time produced, um, in the end, different results as far as you know whether or not the the work that was being done was actually taken. If you had the program where you had people who were volunteering, who were interested, who had those intangibles um, with the Marine Advisory Group, you know there. Their work took hold with the Vietnamese Marine Corps. With the Combined Action Program, you know, as we started 
getting a, um, a little bit more relaxed as far as our standards and who we were putting in that program, you know, it wasn't as effective. And the, the after-action reports from those two programs kind of re- kind of showed, you know, that as we changed the type of people that we're putting in the program, uh, we have, you know, diminishing results. So we're talking to Major Rafael Dion Warfield. He is the second place winner of this year's Marine Corps essay contest. His article is in this month's issue of Proceedings called Every Marine is Not an Advisor. Going to Facebook Live here. Uh, Mike Brennan is uh, watching in from Idaho. Hello, Mike. And then Ken Matson says, all Marines are rifflemen. That's exactly uh, uh, Rafael's point is, yes, all Marines are rifflemen, but they're not advisors. Uh, so, Rafael, uh, to also add to Bill's personal experience, I embedded with um, the the troops in Afghanistan for a month back in 2010. I had a chance to spend some time in Paktika province. And what I very much got to see there was the level of State Department work that, uh, you know, this, the, the platoon sergeants and the uh, platoon leaders are doing as they patrol the villages and that sort of thing. So this is to your point. Right. It's not just having a war fighting capability, um, you know, like you're 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 very good with a 50 cal. Um, It is very much about the nuance of fitting into local culture and being able to connect in a way that that forwards your your not just military goals, but your national policy goals. And and I watched um, this one captain sit down in Ashura and really connect with the tribal elders in a way that just really was an eye-opener to me. Um, so that goes back to your point. I don't know what screening the Army did uh, to pick this particular captain, um, but I think to, you know, to just sort of guess, I think it was just these guys were just got good on it, good at it uh, over the course of their time in country. I don't think they had any, you know, I don't think there was particularly a screening process about their abilities as diplomat you're right and i you know to, to be clear you know it's not a, a an across the board where every you know advisor that we send is um is incapable of doing their job or, or produces bad results we do have a lot of successful programs and a lot of successful marines um that are working with our foreign partners that are doing amazing jobs um but then we, we have to look, we can't just focus on what we're doing right, we have to look at how we can make it better. And the way that we make it better is by identifying those individuals that are doing a good job now and, and looking at them and saying, what makes this person good at their job? And what we and what the reports and the research and the after actions dating all the way back um, to you know the early ni- to the early 20th century is saying that you know it's those intangibles. You're not going to be able to look at this marine and just say that just because he is a good rifleman, he is a good advisor. I mean, because being an advisor, yes, there's a lot of technical uh, proficiency that's required, but then there's also a personality that has to go along with it. And while every marine is a rifleman, every marine is not going to have the personality and the intangible skill set in order to be successful at an advisor. Roger that. Um, hello to Kwezi Hanaku, calling or watching Facebook Live from Ghana. We really have an international audience. Wow, that's fantastic! Uh, on Facebook Live today, yeah, great. Any question from from Ghana? No, you just say want to join from Ghana. Great. All right. Hey, uh, Major Warfield, I'm curious if you've received any feedback from up your chain of command or from other Marines, uh, colleagues, etc., on your uh, December article. So I um, I did send it out to. Um to my, my chain of command and sent out to some of the Marines that I have worked, uh, worked with 
um, that fourth story, and then that I've actually deployed with it to other other countries and work with other foreign security forces. Um, a lot of them, you know, as I was writing it and I was talking about the article, you know, we had great conversation and great discussion about it, and. Um, you know, it's the same sentiments. We see them, especially as the, the group who primarily trains and does a lot of the, the briefings and the teaching and um, the classes for the Marines that are coming through, we see who we are sending out. And we see that we have some really, really great Marines who are going to be, you know, phenomenal advisors. And then we have some Marines that, you know, are probably going to need a little a little extra work and perhaps may not be the best fit as an advisor. Um, and we understand that, you know, you can't just take random Marines out of the Corps and just send them to another country and say, hey, you know, work, work with the partner and be good at what you do. You know, that, that's just not, it's not going to work. That's not how that works. You know, we, we understand that there are personalities that are involved, and with any specialized job like this, you've got to look at the person. So hopefully these people also congratulated you for being the second place winner of the Naval Institute's Marine Corps essay contest. Yes, and you know, I, it, you know, not necessarily on topic with the with the essay, you know, that some, writing for writing into these different contests is something that I've been doing for a few years now, and it's always a, a surprise and an honor um, when the institute, you know, takes one of your pieces and says, "Hey, we want to publish it," even if you don't win in the contest, saying that, "Hey, we still see something here that we want to uh, we want to get out there, and we we recognize your voice and your opinion." So it's always a humbling experience whenever I, I get that email, that phone call saying, "Hey, we're going to take this piece and we're going to we're going to put it out to the world." Very cool. And uh, yeah, for our listeners, uh, I'll remind everyone that uh, essay contests at the Naval Institute, we run about 12 of them a year. They're all judged in the blind. So we have one woman on our staff who takes all the essays in. She's the only person who knows the names that go with each essay. Uh, they're circulated to our staff. We give them a, a screening, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the show today, about the uh, Midshipman and Cadet Essay Contest. When, we're, when the staff readers are reading them, we don't know the uh, the names of the authors, and then the top we pick the top uh, you know eight ten uh, usually, and those go to our editorial board or to a panel of judges on a specific topic, uh, and the judges don't know who the winners are. And once they're judged, and we've got the winners, then we open the envelope and uh, and we go, oh look at this, it's uh, you know, and, and in fact we just got the judging back on the leadership essay contest uh, this year. Um, and I don't have the names in front of me, but the winner is Navy. The second uh, place winner is uh, a Marine, and the third place winner is a Coast Guard officer. So wow. very exciting, yeah, yeah. and uh, all, all judged in the blind. So, uh, and if you're looking for information on how to enter an essay contest with the Naval Institute, uh, it's on our website. If you go to usni.org, uh, you can look under content, and there is a, uh, a place that lists um, essay contests. So content... And then essay contests, and you can see the list, CNO Naval History, Coast Guard, Cyber, Emerging and Disruptive Technologies. We essentially have one, sometimes two, just about every month. Uh, and the winning prize for most of them is $5,000. So uh, it's kind of worth giving up a weekend or two of your time for a chance to, uh, to win an essay contest. So, um, Major Warfield, just um, tell us a little bit about... Um, your job as an operational law attorney at uh, Marine Forces Command, what, what kinds of uh, topics are you working on down there, uh, and when do you expect to deploy again? Well, I'm up for orders uh, next summer, so I'll be getting a new, uh, getting a new assignment uh, for summer of 19. But as the operational law attorney, I am the, um, 
the, the main guy that not only advises uh, members of Marine, uh, MARFARCOM here on operational issues um, as far as the deployment orders and um, applicable rules of engagement, but I also uh, get the opportunity to travel abroad and to travel um, and train Marines who are getting ready to deploy. So we're doing those pre-deployment briefs about rules of engagement, law of war, law of armed conflict, escalation of force, you know, tactical directives and things of that nature. So it's... Um, a great opportunity for me to, to get to work with a wide variety of mission sets and uh, Marines that are going to different parts of the country and being able to explain the nuances of where they're going and, what, and how their operation or their mission um, has you know special nuances that they need to be familiar with. And I also get to work with our security force regiment here that does a lot of our um, guarding and protection of vital U.S. assets and infrastructure here um, in the state. So instead of doing rules of engagement, we give them the rules for the use of force. Um, so kind of the domestic side of the house as well. So included in the operational law wheelhouse, I also have the, um, the humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions, um, as well as some of our um, domestic uh, operations whenever we have incidents where um, that maybe military forces will have to be used here domestically. Uh, we do those briefings and we do those advising to the that advisement to the commander as well. Yeah, very cool. Uh, I'm curious, has the uh, Defense Department's shift towards, you know, near-peer competition or peer-level competition, uh, China-Russia focus, high-end warfare, has that trickled down to any changes that you've seen in, in, this, uh, in 2018 in terms of rules of engagement and operational law? You know, there are some there are some specialized things that you see that come out that are that are very specific. You know, as you read the news and you know people are talking about new initiatives and things of that nature. You know, there's different things that are being suggested, things that are being talked about. But at the end of the day, those fundamentals are still the same: military necessity, proportionality, unnecessary suffering, and distinction remain the four pillars for the law of armed conflict. And those four international fundamentals are still driving our rules of engagement as a force. And we are still focusing on making sure that the way that we conduct war and the way that we win wars is still consistent with you know our both international and domestic laws and policies that's a great very articulate answer so thank you for that hey uh we are out of time today but i wanted to thank major warfield for being on the show today his essay in the december issue of proceedings is called every marine is not an advisor the opening pages are page 40 and 41 of the december uh, issue of Proceedings, which has uh, a bunch of EOD guys uh, trumping around in the snow in northern Norway on the cover. Um, and it is the uh, Major Warfield's uh, SA-1 second place in the Marine Corps Essay Contest, uh, sponsored by BAE Systems this year. So congrats again for writing and for winning, uh, Major Warfield. It was great to have you on the show, and uh, we look forward to uh, reading more that you'll write in the future. Thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. You have a good day as well. Okay, well, that wraps it up for today. Uh, just a reminder, everyone, that uh, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you back here next week.